All right, well, good morning. Welcome back to week six of our series called Rise Up and Build. We've been exploring the Old Testament books of Ezra and now Nehemiah, and we've been asking the question, what is God teaching us from these books? Because we believe that every part of Scripture is uh, God-breathed, that it is profitable. And so what, what can we learn from Nehemiah's life and the story of the people of Israel after the exile? And I got to tell you that this, this has been an interesting study. Uh, you probably know that modern Israel has been in the news recently. And I've been concerned, as I, I imagine many of you have been, about the disturbing events in the Middle East. On October the 7th, terrorists from the group Hamas crossed the border from Gaza into Israel and committed some horrifying acts against Israeli civilians. In fact, it's been reported at this point that over 1,300 Israelis, and I think there's even more climbing, were killed in the attack, many more injured. The deaths included women and children and the elderly. And the actions were very graphic, if you follow the news. Some women were, were violated and then dragged through the streets. Infants were not just killed, but beheaded. Hostages were taken, including a Holocaust survivor. There's just no words for these atrocities, only a stomach-churning nausea. In fact, some people have argued that the events of October 7th were Israel's 9-11. And yet the conversation that's followed has been rather interesting because many people have been remiss to roundly condemn those attacks. Some have even celebrated it. And so it's, it's worth stating that while there may be a complicated history in the Middle East between the Palestinians and the Israelis, the graphic murder and the dehumanization of life is an act of evil. And yes, we should also be concerned about civilians in places like Gaza right now, where they're in harm's way in southern Israel. The loss of life is always tragic. And no matter what your theology about the nation of Israel, these events should move us to our knees. Like Nehemiah, we should weep. And so we've come this morning to Nehemiah chapters 3 to 5. In these chapters, we're going to see Nehemiah organize and unify his people as they rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, as they're surrounded by enemies on all sides. And yes, as his own people are facing the collateral damages. <clears throat> now, the thematic similarities to recent events I found rather striking. And so as we study the passage this week, I think that'll make, uh, that'll make some sense. And, and it was hard for me not to, not to think about some news pictures as, we were, as, as, as I was looking through this. Um, Israel now has formed a, a unity government for the battle. The Iron Dome has provided protection against missile attacks. A second front is now opening in the north from Lebanon, uh, which, by the way, we have missionaries over there, uh, the Caspers, who you should pray for. And there's a lot of discussions about a growing humanitarian crisis inflicted upon Palestinian civilians in Gaza, as well as some people in southern Israel. Similar events, I think you'll find, happen in Nehemiah 3 to 5. And all of that causes a tension. It causes a discomfort. Because I think the crisis we're witnessing points to, to this, this, this tension in our hearts where we ask, what do I do when conflict, when danger knocks at my door? The outline of Nehemiah 3, in particular, offers two images when it comes to conflict. The first image I want to give you is that of a door. And the second image is that of a wall. Nehemiah 3 is all about building the walls of Jerusalem, which was an incredible team effort, as we're going to see. But I want you to notice that in the midst of the wall, there's also a lot of doors. Here's a repetitious statement from chapter 3. Nehemiah 3.3 3 says this, The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate, 
They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. That statement is repeated over and over again in chapter 3. In fact, there's 12, 12 doors around the wall. Now, what do doors have the ability to do? They have the ability to open and let someone in. Now, the million-dollar question is, how do you know when to open the door? That requires discernment. Because if somebody knocks on your door or rings your doorbell, that usually means they, they want to talk. And even if there's conflict, it shows goodwill. But if somebody is trying to violently knock down your door so they can get in and do you harm, well, that's something different. When terrorists break into your country and savagely kill people, I don't think they're interested in talking. Now, if that's the situation, you may have to replace that door with a thicker wall. Why? Because you don't want to let somebody like that with that motivation in. There is a time for boundaries. So the tension we feel in our modern world is, again, this. How do we know when to open the door? When every subject is polarized, when everywhere you look, people seem to be building thicker walls, and then they get behind the walls with people they agree with, and some of us think that's pretty destructive. Some of us will say, whenever there's conflict, we need to go out and try to reach more people. We just need to be more winsome. Now, others will say that that's a noble goal, but walls are still important. Sometimes you need a wall. You need to speak the truth and draw a line in the sand. No surrender, no compromise. How do you know when to open the door? Well, I think we need to use doors more effectively because a door allows for discernment. You can let somebody in or you can go out to meet somebody. But there's still this healthy boundary in place, especially when conflict arises. A door can be shut or it can be opened. There's a time for prayer and faith, and there's a time for preparation and discernment. Do you open or close the door? That's the tension. That question arises when there's conflict in our calling. Because as Christians, God has given us a mission to go out into the world to make disciples. But Jesus also said the world will hate you. Paul says in Romans 12, do your best to live at peace with people, but trust that vengeance belongs to the Lord. When conflict arises, do you open the door? Do you shut it? Do you build a bigger wall? In Nehemiah 3 to 5, we see two major conflicts. One is external. One is internal amongst the people. Both threaten to derail the mission God has given his people. So we've been talking about God's call on our lives, which is a theme all over Nehemiah. Uh, last week, Pastor Dave walked us through calling, and he talked about an opposition phase to our calling. Today, I want to show you how to lean into that opposition phase, because the key question of Nehemiah 3 to 5 is this, how do we respond when there's conflict, when there's danger in our call? Nehemiah shows us three principles. Number one, you got to have clarity of mission. Number two, you have to have courage under fire, and then you also need to have compassion during that crisis, because conflict will come. And if you want to stand firm when it does, you need clarity, you need courage, and you need compassion. So before we look at each of those, let's, let's pray and ask God to help us today. Heavenly Father, I come before you, Lord, and I, I thank you for each person who's here today. Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to us, speak to my heart, Lord God. May, may, may the truths of your word just be exposed, and may you, you get them deep in our hearts, apply them, Lord God, through the power of your spirit and the hope of the gospel, Lord. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for us, for leading us to the Father. 
We pray that you would illumine us today, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So when conflict arises, you need clarity of mission. In fact, let's say that together. When conflict arises, we need clarity of mission. And that is crucial, and I'm going to tell you why. Um, I'll give you an illustration. I had a friend when I went to seminary who really wanted to be a church planter. And he was going to plant in a challenging location with very little resources. That's, that's common if you're going to be a church uh, planter. And I asked him, why, am, why do you want to do this? And his response was just simply this, I feel the call. And as we spoke further, it became clear that clarity of calling was crucial because my friend said to me, there, there's going to be days when I go and do this and, and the mission is so hard, I want to quit. Uh, there's going to be days when the money is tight, when people are intimidating me, when, I'm, when people might try to shut down the ministry, there's going to be days when all I have is the clarity of the call, the clarity of the mission to reach people for Christ. And I've watched people give up when the conflict heats up because they didn't have the clarity of the mission. If you're building God's kingdom and you're making a difference, Satan wants to stop you. But if God has given you a job and you can only finish that job if you know the mission, do you know your specific calling? Are, and are you facing opposition? Because work can be hard, home life can be hard, marriage and parenting, that can be really hard. But if you know you are called to that job or called to lead your family, that, that clarity, it, it, it helps you overcome challenges. So Nehemiah and his people had the vision to rebuild the city. Nehemiah chapter 3, before the conflict heats up, we, we, finally, we finally start to see the construction of this wall we've been hearing about. Chapter 3 begins this way. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers and priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hananel. Now, I want you to notice who's mentioned first and why they start building. The first person mentioned is the high priest who builds the wall starting at the Sheep Gate. Uh, the spiritual leader goes first and he builds the section of the wall by the temple the section between these two towers and the gate, the door that he builds, is where the animal sacrifices were brought into the city for the temple. But it wasn't just him. The section next to him also started construction. Verse 2, and next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur, the son of Imri, built, and on and on and on it goes in chapter 3, and next to them, and next to them, and next to them, they built, they built, they built the wall. Nehemiah 3 is basically a list of people who contributed to building the walls of Jerusalem. They were people of different social strata and occupations. They had different skill sets. They, they, they were young and they were old. They all contributed to building the wall, which was a testimony of Nehemiah's organizational skills. In fact, let me show you uh, how impressive the project was. Look at this map right here. This is a map of Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day. And you can see, I highlighted up there, the sheepscape. That's where the section starts. It begins at the sheepscape at the top. It goes all the way around the wall counterclockwise. They're building the different sections until Nehemiah 3 ends back at the Sheep Gate. There was actually 12 gates, 12 doors all around the wall of the city. Now, here's the impressive part. As the project manager, the governor, Nehemiah, actually organized 42 different sections of this wall that were built simultaneously. Now, that's amazing. 
Because those in the audience, if you've ever done project management or, or you got contractors working with you, you know it's really, really hard to get contractors to do anything on time and certainly to work simultaneously on time. Right? Amen? Now, how did Nehemiah do that? He offered clarity of mission. Here's a truth you can cling to. Clarity of mission breeds unity. Because when people are clear about the purpose of their mission, when their own, about their own role in the mission, and when they are empowered to accomplish the mission, the job gets done. Bottom line, the section of Nehemiah shows us the value of teamwork. And as New Testament followers of Jesus, God is calling us to build, but to build the kingdom of God. All of us have different gifts and abilities. That's why Paul writes this to the Ephesian church in chapter 4 of that letter. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were what? You were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And then he mentions some of the gifts. He gave the apostles and the prophets and the evangelists and the shepherds and the teachers to what? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. For building up the body of Christ. Now, the thrust of Ephesians 4 is unity in the body of Christ, so we may grow and use our gifts for God's glory. And then, if you go over to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, in his own words, teaches us to pray what? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In short, we must work together using our gifts to build the kingdom of God and bring people to saving faith in Christ. Clarity of mission breeds unity and motivation. In the gospel. Now, yesterday, uh, as Noah mentioned before, we had our annual trunk or treat event. 77 families, 300 people, a lot of people who are not connected to our church come to that event. I love it. There's, the campus is filled with people bringing their kids. It's a lot of fun. Now, do you know what it takes to organize an event like this? No, if you don't, you can go ask Rachel and Lenore and their team, and they will tell you it's a lot of work. It's a lot of organization, volunteers, car spaces, candy, everything gets, that gets put together. Uh, they help us as leaders, but, but, but thank you to so many of you who gave your time, your talent, and your candy simultaneously to help an event like that come together. That's a picture of the kingdom of God. Nehemiah also was a great leader who communicated and inspired his people. Now again, how did he do that? He offered clarity of mission. And the question for Nehemiah was, why did Nehemiah rebuild the walls? I mean, we got a whole book here uh, of the Bible where basically the, the purpose is to put the walls back up, which must be important, right? Can you tell me why building the wall was important? I want to highlight two major reasons for the wall. The first one was for protection because Israel had enemies, like today, there, there was danger on all sides, and we're going to see that in chapter 4. The wall showed renewed protection for the people of Israel. Now, why is that important? Well, the second reason for the wall was the promise, protection and promise. Because, now, what do I mean by that? Well, you might remember that a major part of the Old Testament is a promise God gives to Abraham in Genesis. He tells him that he will make a mighty nation who will bless the Lord. How will they bless the Lord? How will they bless the world, rather? Well, from the line of Abraham will come Messiah, the Savior King of the world, Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul tells us this in Galatians 3. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, 
and to your offspring who is Christ. The offspring, the seed of Abraham, the promise of salvation comes through Christ. Look at how Paul finishes the chapter. He says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. All the families on the earth will be blessed. How? Because Messiah, the Savior, Jesus himself will come from the seed of Abraham. The line has to be preserved. The walls are protecting the line so that the Savior can come one day. Protection and promise. That's the reason for the wall. That's the clarity of the mission. But clarity doesn't just breed unity. It also leads people to action. Clarity of mission drives motivation. Because when we're clear about the mission and our role in it, we wind up taking action. And that, there's a, that's the major challenge to completing any project. People need motivation to work. Most of us don't accomplish things because why? We're unmotivated. So how does Nehemiah mobilize an entire city to build this wall? He gives them ownership. He makes them build the section of the wall that is in front of their house. He says, basically, I need you to take ownership over the section of the wall that's in front of your specific property. And if you don't build that section, uh, there's going to be a gap. And when the enemy comes and they attack and they want to invade, they're going to start with you because you didn't build your section of the wall. It's brilliant. He makes this project a family affair. Look at verse 12. We, we meet this guy, Shalom, the son of Halahesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem who repaired the walls, he and his daughters. So here you got a civic leader working with his family, and they're motivated to protect their home. And he even gets his daughters involved. Now, my kids are still at the age where they love doing projects with me. How long that will go, I don't know. But uh, I have two girls, uh, so this, this is a near and dear verse to my heart. And if I said, Jenna, Zoe, let's go build a wall, I think they'd be really excited because it's a project we get to do together. They have ownership over it. Nehemiah manages to unify and motivate his people to accomplish something big for God. Now, let's come back to the wall image for just a moment, because in our day and age, it is, it is, in the current cultural discourse, walls have a really bad reputation. If you're building a wall, you're seen as intolerant, unloving, or bigoted. And yes, walls can be used inappropriately. But walls also serve a purpose. See, when I look around and I see everyone, and I look at people, at some level, most of us are building necessary walls in our lives. In some cases, building a wall might actually be the more loving thing to do. I'll give you an illustration. Let's imagine you got a, a bottle with poison in it. The poison is clear, so you can't tell if it's poison or if it's water or what exactly that liquid is unless you put the label on it. Right? The label's kind of like a wall. It, it protects. It keeps you from ingesting a dangerous chemical that could kill you. Now, let me ask you, how loving would it be if you ripped that label off and somebody accidentally drip, drank the poison? See, the label is there for their protection. Or, or if you've got a problem with the wall image, let's, let's come back to the door for a second. Doors are also a barrier. But how many of us would volunteer to rip the doors off of our house so anybody could just walk in? A door is there for protection from strangers, from animals, from weather, right? I got raccoons that like to go around my house. I don't want to have a raccoon in my, my kitchen when I wake up. Or it's going to get cold pretty soon. With the door, you can open it, though. You can invite somebody in, or you could go out to meet somebody. 
or you could close it and lock it for protection. It takes discernment to know what to do. And again, the question is, when do you close the door? That's the tension I was raising before. And some of you are probably asking, well, you're right, but how do I know? How did Nehemiah know? What does it look like to put proper protection around your home? Let me give you three principles. The first principle I want to bring up is that of invitation. And, and this, this is an open-door principle. You know, the Apostle Peter tells us in his letter, his first letter, 1 Peter 4, 9, says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And the word hospitality there means a practical kindness paid especially to strangers through food and drink. The open-door principle of invitation is, a, is an important New Testament ethic. We should be kind and open with our house as much as we can. But as, Christi as Christians, we should be known for our love. So the, the question you might want to ask is, who might God be calling me to invite into my life? But that does require greater vulnerability. So another open-door action we can take is, is that of extend. Extension is also an open-door principle because we, we could walk through our door and go out to others, outside our home, where we're going to build relationships. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4.15, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Where is God calling you to extend his love? So those first two principles are an open door. We should ask as much as we can, how can we have open doors so that the gospel can go forward? But third, third, there is a time to restrict. This is the tension, right? There's a time to close the door on people, on ideas, on maybe entertainment that may cause destruction in your life. Yes, we are called to love people. But even Jesus himself said this, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Did you hear what he said? Right? He's, he says there's wolves in the world, and we have to be what? We have to be shrewd. It's not a bad thing. It's a necessary thing. Sometimes you have to close the door because wolves want to come in and eat you. And in the church, that means we got to protect against things like false doctrine. Um, if you have kids, especially little kids, I, I think there's a time to close the door on certain relationships or media choices or ideas that might bring confusion. You have to spot the wolves by using discernment. Uh, there, there may be relationships in your own life where the doors need to close. And that doesn't mean it's forever. The good thing about doors is you can close them and you can reopen them. But if that relationship is dishonoring to God, if it's causing harm at some level, you may need to consider closing the door for your protection. So where in discernment may God be calling you to restrict? And in order to answer that question, you need the clarity of mission that comes from the Word of God. Many people can't discern what's going on because you don't know enough about the Word of God. You need to go deeper in that. Because opening the door for the gospel, we should do that as much as possible. But sometimes you got to close that door. Why? Because the world is dangerous. And danger comes when we secondly, secondly, when danger comes, we need courage under fire. Now, the real test of a leader is how to handle conflict and opposition. And the next two chapters, Nehemiah faces two threats. Number one, there's an external threat in chapter four. And then secondly, there's an internal threat that shows up in chapter five. So let's see how he responds. The wall's getting built. 
which is signaling to all the people around Jerusalem that the city is back. The restoration of Jerusalem meant that other leaders in the area would start to lose influence because Jerusalem was influential. And that was a threat to them. So the story picks up in chapter 4, verse 1. It says this. Now when Sambalat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. Now there, there is a linguistic pattern in Ezra and Nehemiah that whenever you read that somebody heard a message, it usually means opposition to God's plan is going to follow. Sambalat was this local leader in, in Samaria. Uh, Jerusalem is now a threat to his power. And to say that he was greatly enraged is to say that he was really threatened. So he begins engaging in a psychological form of warfare with the Jews. Look at verse 2. It says, And he said, In the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Now, first, notice, these are public statements. He wasn't just talking with his friends behind the scenes in the locker room. He was speaking this out in front of people, in front of the army of Samaria. In, in other words, he's trying to drum up support for his cause and make Israel look really weak. He raises questions about their motivation, about their trust in God. All of this was a campaign of intimidation. And then the pile-up starts. Verse 3, we meet this guy, Tobiah the Ammonite, another group of people, was beside him, and he said, yes. What are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. That's some serious trash talk right there. And the first guy makes fun of the Jews. He goes, ah, oh, they're weak. They're feeble. What are they doing? Do they think they can do this? And the second guy says, yeah, yeah, look at that puny wall. My little fox can go up there and knock down that wall. What's up? Now, I imagine some of what they were saying reached the ears of Nehemiah and caused concern. And these verses are instructive for us because right now you might be experiencing the same thing. A persecution does not only mean that people are trying to break into your house and kill you. It starts with verbal intimidation. And that's what you might be experiencing in the West for your faith. You may be at work or school and you voice an opinion about a subject and, and the ground, and that's grounding in your faith and people then mock you. Or people you know, may go out of their way to make fun of your beliefs. And maybe you don't hear it from people you know, but, but the cultural messaging certainly reflects that. Actor Chris Pratt, who's a Christian, is often mocked for his faith by a lot of people in the media. In fact, he's, he's got a lot of symbolics in his life. Now, recently, he had some criticism back in May about his faith, and this is the way he responded. He said, well, that's just the way it is. It's nothing new. 2,000 years ago, they did that to him too. Do you have a Sambalat in your life? He brings an external threat with verbal intimidation. How do you respond to that conflict? While our flesh may want to engage in some verbal sparring, we, we, we want to fight back, right? That's, that's our natural inclination. But Nehemiah shows us a better way in verse 4 and 5. We read this. He says, Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads. Give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked 
you to anger in the presence of the builders. See, Nehemiah doesn't send a message to Sambalat. He doesn't tweet back at him a rebuttal. He prays in faith. How many of us run to prayer first when it comes to conflict? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> but I'm willing to bet that most of us don't run to prayer first. We're dragged there when our first inclination didn't work out by the power of the Spirit. And God shows us our weakness. Nehemiah prays and he trusts God for protection. He has clarity of mission and that gives him courage under fire. And so he leads his people. Look at verse 6. He says, so we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Can you sense the resolution in his voice? Can you hear the determination? Yes, yes, we're 50% there. It looks like this, this image we got here on the stage. We're getting there 50%. We're halfway there. It's a song about that, I think. Despite this opposition, we built the wall. We built the wall. We're showing courage because of our trust in God. Now, it's easier to do that when there's verbal intimidation, but it's harder when it escalates to the next phase, physical intimidation. And now things are about to start getting serious. Sambalat's not happy about the news he receives about the wall, and he starts to gather his friends together. And this, is, this again, is where it seems a little eerily similar to, to, to now recent events. We read this in verse 7 and 8. It says, but when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. So since his verbal intimidation didn't work, now Sambalat gets his friends and, and Israel's about to be surrounded on all sides. In fact, let me give you a picture. Check out this map right here. We got, we got the Samaritans, that's Sambalat's people in the north. Right? We got the Ammonites, that's the guy Tobiah. They're over here on, on, the, uh, on the west. We got the Arabians down from the south. We got the men of Ashdod. They're over to the, to the east. They're all coming, surrounding Jerusalem. They're going to converge and try to destroy it. And this is so scary that the Jews that are outside the city actually go to Nehemiah and say, listen, leave, get out of here. You're going to be attacked. But Nehemiah responds the same way he did the first time. Verse 9, and we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Now, do you notice the slight difference, right? He prayed, but they set a guard. He had courage under fire. But fear was starting to grip the hearts of the people, and so Nehemiah encourages them in verse 14. He says, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. Pause. Now, I want you to lean into that verse for just a moment. Because who or what is bringing intimidation into your life right now. Oh, it might be a person, might be a circumstance. And you need to hear the words of Nehemiah 4.14. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. He is bigger than any conflict coming your way. And if I could speak to the, to the men for just a moment, I want you to look at the second half of that verse. Because when you reject fear and trust the Lord, then you fight for your family, right? 
Then you be the spiritual leader that God is calling you to be. Fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. What does it look like to fight for your family? Are you loving them well? And the verse ultimately brings us to the big takeaway of chapter four, and that's this. Courage requires prayer and preparation. We need to get in the ring. We need courage under fire with prayer and preparation. Pray and trust your God, but be prepared to fight. And so we read this in verses 15 to 20. This is how the chapter concludes. Look at the picture. It's it's long, but I'm gonna read it all. Verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had frustrated their plan... We all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction, and half, what? Held the spears and the shields and the bows and the coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. Each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread. And we are separated on the wall, far from one another, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet. Rally to us there, for our God will fight for us. Now, what do you learn about courage under fire right here in those verses? Number one, they recognized there was an enemy. Number two, despite that, they kept working on the mission God had given them. But number three, they were prepared for battle if necessary. Now, this is the famous chapter where we we, we get the sword and the trowel image. A trowel is a tool that's used to put cement on bricks. So literally what he's describing here is they're building the wall with one hand and, and they got a sword in the other hand ready to fight, right? The sword and the trowel. They have courage for the call. They were unified also. I love that image of the of the trumpet sounding. The whole people, if there was an attack, the whole people would rally together to the trumpet to fight and defeat the enemy, all the while, number five, knowing and believing that the battle belongs to the Lord. What a great picture of courage under fire. Courage requires prayer and preparation. Nehemiah had his people understand the clarity of the mission, and that gave them courage under fire. Where do you need courage today? Where do you need courage? courage because you're under fire. Many of us are doing ministry in the marketplace. You may be facing intimidation for your faith and your beliefs. You're trying to build the kingdom, but the opposition is real. We pray, but we also engage in spiritual warfare. In fact, my encouragement to you today is this. Rally together like the people of Israel with other believers and trust that God will fight for you. In the end, the victory is his. Because when conflict comes, and it will, you need clarity of mission, you need courage under fire, but then finally, you need compassion during the crisis. And this last one is something we overlook. Why? The reason we don't have compassion during the crisis is that our eyes are sometimes too focused on the mission. And that may seem odd, but we can be so focused on the mission that we run over people. We miss the compassion needed for the collateral damage that can occur. This is the humanitarian crisis principle. The mission may cause damage. The work can have consequences. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I know plenty of stories of people who are engaged in ministry, pastors, 
who sacrificed their family on the altar of ministry. And then what's the response when, when they're confronted? Well, I was working for the Lord. How, how is that bad? I, I was following God's call. And if in your business, the mission and the bottom line becomes so important that people are cast aside, there is collateral damage, and it can cause a crisis. And we need compassion during that crisis. Nehemiah faced this external conflict in chapter 4 that required courage, but in chapter 5, he, he faces an internal conflict of, amongst his people that requires compassion. The story picks up in chapter 5, verse 1. It says, Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. All right, what is going on here? And that word outcry, which I highlighted, is the same word that's used in, in Exodus chapter 3, verse 9, the same Hebrew word, where the Israelites were complaining about Egyptian oppression. Egyptian oppression. And so this is a signal that something bad is happening. What is it? It's the collateral damage of the mission. It's the price of building the wall. There was an economic crisis that came about because people gave everything for the mission of building the wall, which meant they couldn't do any other work. Specifically, they couldn't grow grain to feed the people. And so now there's a food shortage. In fact, if you read this whole chapter, and I'm summarizing quite a bit of chapter 5, you'll find three major groups that are impacted by this crisis. The first group, and let's just, for, for argument's sake, let's just call the first group the renters. Right? These are families who owned no land, and while working on the wall, they, they received no income because they couldn't grow grain to harvest. It was food, but it was also currency of the day. The second group, let's call them the landlords. They were people who owned land with a mortgage on it. And since the renters couldn't pay their rent, they, they could not pay their mortgage. Again, this, the, the, the grain was a form of payment. So basically, they were defaulting on their loans. And then third, third, you had another group who were, let's say, they were wealthier landlords who owned land, but they had no mortgage. They owned it outright. But they still had to pay property taxes to the king. Now what happened is basically they had to take out a loan, they had to take out debt to pay their property taxes. Can you imagine? Of course you can. You live in New Jersey. You know what it's like. <laughs> what a mess. And this was all due to the downstream effects of building the wall, of the mission. Now, the mission was, was important, and perhaps there was necessary cost, but the point is this. We must have compassion for the crisis, because it's even worse. What happened was people even had to sell their children into slavery just to be able to cover their debts. Do you see how terrible this was? Then you say, no wonder there was an outcry, right? No wonder that was happening. In effect... Uh, then the biggest tragedy was the fact that the creditors for these loans were fellow Jews. So in effect, the Jews were oppressing their own people. Now, Nehemiah hears this, and, uh, and he's got a problem with it. Look at verse 6. He says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And if you're reading along about this, you're reading it, you say, finally, somebody's angry about this. Nehemiah's heart is not just broken, he's angry at how the poor and, and the women and the children and even the middle class people were being treated by his own people. They built the wall, but now nobody could eat. They had clarity of mission, even to the point of sacrifice. They had courage despite opposition. And he says, where's the compassion for the people that are hurt? 
Now, in the second half of chapter 5, Nehemiah steps up again and shows himself to be a true leader. He models the necessity of compassion during crisis. And he does this by modeling that open door, closed door principle we discussed earlier. The first action he takes is confrontation. He confronts his own people. He says, why are you taking advantage of your own people and charging interest? Why are you letting your brothers and sisters be sold into slavery? Which, just to be clear, the the modern equivalent would be we got people in the congregation loaning other people money and then charging them interest for it rather than trying to help them out. And so Nehemiah draws a line in the sand and he says, stop this. Walk in fear of the Lord. Give this interest money back. His door is open to discussion, but if they refused, he was going to close the door. And their response was silence because conviction came. Their hearts were moved to compassion, and they returned the interest money. Now, second, Nehemiah models generosity. He opens the door to invite his people into relationship because, you see, Nehemiah also was loaning money to people, which was his right as the governor, but we read he had a generous heart. Look at verse 18 and 19 of chapter 5. It says, Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance, that was the interest part, of the governor, because the service was too heavy on this people. Remember for my good, oh my God, all that I've done for this people. In other words, he says, I could have taken advantage of the people, but I didn't. I chose to honor the Lord and walk in fear of him. And so in chapter 5, at the end here, Nehemiah is giving us a picture, I think, of God's grace and generosity. He opens the door and has compassion on his people. And our great God does the same with us. Because all of us were once sinners, rebels against the living God. We owed a debt we couldn't pay. We would be slaves to sin forever, but God. Oh, church, but God in his grace offers what we don't deserve. He calls us now to model generosity to others. We open this message by talking about conflict in our calling and and the tension throughout Nehemiah 3 to 5 is should you open or close the door? Should you build the wall or not? Conflict's inevitable. And the question, again, is how will you respond? And we saw three pretty clear principles. You need clarity of mission, you need courage under fire, and you need compassion during crisis. And I want you to look at those principles right now and ask, which one do I need the most? Do I have clarity on the mission God is specifically calling me to? If not, go to him in prayer. Do I need courage under fire? Remember Nehemiah 4.15, remember the Lord, 4.14, remember the Lord who's great and awesome. He will fight for you. Do I need compassion for the crisis I am facing? If you don't have compassion, you may need to retune your heart to the grace of God. Because he was generous with us, may we be generous with others. The walls of Jerusalem were built for the people's protection, but there was a lot of doors. And those doors remind us that there's a way into the city. And so as we close and the worship team comes to the stage, I want to make an observation. In chapter 3, Nehemiah recounts the building of the wall, but where did he start? At the sheep's gate. He starts at the door. The priests brought the sacrificial animal into the city. And as chapter 3 progresses... As we talked about, he takes us all the way around the wall and he ends again with the sheepskate. Now, why do I find that interesting? 
Because 400 years later, over 400 years later, somebody else enters Jerusalem. And he didn't enter through the sheep's gate, but he, he would give his life as the perfect Lamb of God to make atonement for our sins. In fact, if you read the New Testament, Paul tells us that before we become Christians, we are God's enemies. We are not part of the family. There was a wall between us and him. We are on the outside. And the question is, how do you get in? Where is the door? John chapter 9, verse 10, Jesus himself says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. I am the door. There's a wall to the city. Not everybody can come in, but there's a door, and his name is Jesus Christ. He's the good shepherd who protects his sheep and lays down his life for them. He's the good shepherd who leaves the 99 to seek the one who was lost. He's the one who, by his shed blood on the cross, breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, making us one in him. Jesus is the door. Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus is the way to the new Jerusalem at the end of time. And church, when there's conflict, the question is, will you take people to the door so they can discover the water of life? When your own heart wanders, will you come back to him? I pray that you will. Because when you do, you will find his generous grace and see all of life more clearly. Because Christ is the clarity of the mission. We need courage to share Christ. And to do that, we must have compassion for the world as Christ has compassion for us. I pray we can do that. I pray we can do that for the glory of God and for the sake of the gospel. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come before you today and I thank you, Lord, for your word. Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice. You are the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Holy Spirit, I thank you that you open our hearts, awaken our hearts to show us the door, Jesus himself who brings salvation. Father, if there are some of my friends here today who are wandering, Lord, I pray that they would come back to you. I pray that you would retune their hearts to your grace. Father, I pray for those who don't know you, Lord, that are sitting here. I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would lead them to the door and take them through that they may know that Jesus is your Savior. Father, would you open hearts and minds today? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.